Um, let us pray, uh, Heavenly Father, for, for this time together. Uh, Lord, would you be in our midst um, as we discuss uh, your creativity in us um, and uh, help us to recognize that spark. Um, all these things for the sake of Christ's glory. Amen. Um, so uh, this class uh, I called Creative Theology, um, not because I'm going to get creative with theology. Maybe that's why you came. Um, but uh, because I want to talk about creativity. Uh, so the subtitle is Creating in the Image of God. If I were to do a follow-up on this after I wrestled with the material, I'd call it Creating by the Grace of God. Um, but uh, I got too many things coming up to, to do that second part. So look out for that one probably sometime in 2016. Um, I do want to teach that follow-up because I have some thoughts about not just creating in the image of God, um, but uh, what love has to do with creativity. Often we think about um, the artist as someone who's kind of angsty and, and producing out of a place of desperation and depression. And that can be true, uh, but there's something to be said about um, creating by the grace of God. Um, and so I'm going to talk about uh, creativity as, as it has to do with God, the creator. Um, and I'm thinking about creativity a lot. I think about creativity a lot, but um, sort of hashing out some concepts of some things that, honestly, I want to write about. Um, and often I find that, that teaching classes helps me. Sometimes writing something helps me teach a class, but sometimes teaching a class helps me to write something. Um, so I'm on that uh, bug right now. Um, um, so these are uh, thoughts that are formulating, but, but I think they're correct, but they're still formulating. And I'm really interested in, in what your sort of uh, feedback is and some thoughts that you have. And I had this uh, grand plan that I was going to print out um, the handout to give you some of the, the scripture readings and some other things I'm going to read from. And the, the printer jammed like 15 minutes before the 9 o'clock service. So I apologize to the person who has to find that and clean it up because I have no idea how to fix it. I was trying to, I was trying to get creative, but it wasn't working. Um, so you're going to have to listen to me read, which I think is okay. I have trouble listening to someone read things. That's why I like to have something to follow along for you. But maybe you're not like me. Maybe you can just hear it. And so I want to talk about uh, Genesis uh, chapter 1 and a little bit of chapter 2. Uh, and then I'll come back around to Genesis chapter 3. Um, and uh, first, the first words of the Bible say... In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And then you know the rest. He, he goes through and creates all sorts of different things. Uh, waters, separates the expanses, heaven and earth creates animals, both in the sea and the sky and on the land. And then finally, uh, we hear, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed 
that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and uh, to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And then skipping ahead to chapter 2, skipping uh, the beginning of chapter 2, which kind of rehashes that story in a a different sort of uh, literary approach. Then we hear, uh, now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see uh, what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And then skipping ahead a few verses, something else I want to say something about toward the end of the chapter. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And so some thoughts on all that's happening in Genesis chapter uh, 1 and 2. First, the first words of the Bible are, in the beginning God created. Um, And so we learn that the the first attribute that we hear about God is that he's creative. Um, And something that's... uh, interesting about God is that he makes things out of nothing. I mean, you know, the, the, the first, uh, the, the, the next line is the earth was without form and void. Um, and so ex nihilo uh, creates material things. Um, so uh, and he creates light and matter and animals and then uh, creates humanity. And we're told God created man in his own image. And what's the image that we have of God so far? Well, that he's creative that he's the creator. And so that means that man being created in his own image means that inside of all humans since uh, Adam is this uh, creative uh, image, this creative spark. And uh, that's really interesting to me because you've probably said this. I know I've said it at times. I hear tons of other people say, I'm just not creative, <laughs> right? Or uh, I, I have no artistic ability. I don't know how to draw or, or whatever. I don't know how to write. Um, I think that that's not true, actually. If you look at small children, what are they doing all the time? They're creating messes. <laughs> I mean, they're, crea- they're creative. Uh, you see that image of God in the, the, the youngest of us, uninhibited. Um, and, and my children create things that you wouldn't normally hang up like in a museum, but sometimes it's fascinating what they create. It doesn't have the sort of meticulous technical skill that you would expect of a quote artist um, but sometimes our, our daughter who's five can create really interesting things out of construction paper scissors and glue uh, and that's really abstract uh, but and, and she explains to you what it is um, and that was inside of all of us and maybe some of you are still creative and that's never left you but a lot of us something happened along the way um, and so that um, Creative energy, though, isn't just about artistry or visual arts. Here we learn the first kind of thing that God gives to um, to the first man is to have dominion over uh, the animals. And what does he do? He names them. So linguistic creativity. Um, to give the animals names. God didn't give them the names, but we're told that the man gave them names. And they were probably... Uh, strange names. I mean, if you listen to the names of things around uh, the world, we have uh, strange names for animals. Even my own name, I think, is strange. Matt is like this sort of monosyllabic sound, um, and yet my parents gave it to me, you know, out of some creative act. They decided that was the name we're going to give him. Um, And so the first man did the same thing, not just 
creating stuff material, but uh, linguistic artistry with naming things. <clears throat> um, and then finally, uh, uh, skipping ahead to the end of chapter two, we hear the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And I think that that sort of uh, innocence uh, is in the smallest children that nakedly create things and are not ashamed of them. And what happens along the way that the, the, the world sort of tells us that's not good enough or we just hear it out there, people tell us it directly or we get these ideas from just even, you know, one of the hardest things for me as a teacher was before I was in ministry, I was an English teacher. The first month was great. I was a writing teacher and I was trying to get my students to create with writing and I was their coach for about a month and then what happened? The red pen and I graded them and our relationship completely changed because I was I was judging even if it was with the best intents for after a while I stopped using red and used green like go <laughs> uh, but th it didn't matter to them because just any writing on their page sort of automatically triggered this thing that's inside of all of us that uh, all, all our life we've been hearing um, well no no you, you, you didn't do that quite right if you could just sort of change this um, and so we uh, stop creating uh, or start thinking about ourselves as creative and and those in adulthood who are still creative and artists struggle with this constantly uh, maybe you do um, and uh, they have to get over it and yet there's still that internal critic that's some, one of the hardest things for me as a writer is I'm constantly constantly editing which is terrible about um, computers versus typewriters. This is an editing me. You can constantly edit versus a typewriter. You just have to produce and then come back. But with the, the, the laptop, it's just constant editing. And we're like that with life. But I want to say that I'm not just talking about creativity with art because there's this sort of um, creative energy in all of us. We put it um, to use in other ways. If we don't... Um, put it into use into naming things or, or creating things with our hands, we have to sort of get that out of us. Even when we don't think that we're being creative, we are. I mean, even the person who created this chair, it's very utilitarian, um, was putting their creative energy into developing that. Whether the person who designed it or the person who, um, who actually made it with the material. And, and by the way, this creative impulse could be, these hands could produce uh, masterpieces of art and uh, music, and they can also be used for violence. And I think that that creative energy uh, can can uh, go and, and be used the wrong way. And so um, let me stop there, though, because I, I don't want to get yet to the violent thing. I want to stick with the, the, the creative energy. And I want to read to you an excerpt from this book, a few excerpts, um, called uh, The Crowd, The Critic, and the Muse, a book for creators by uh, a singer-songwriter named Michael Gungor. Um, and I, I commend this book to you. If anything I'm talking about today interests you because he takes the sort of, he's a Christian himself and, and thinks through being a creator uh, with a Christian lens. And here's what Michael Gungor says. The common idea that there are some people who are creative and some who are not is a myth. On some level, we are all artists. We're all creators. Of course, not all of us consider our work, quote, art, but uh, 
human creativity gets ignored for the genius that it is because it is not so plain and practical. Take sewer systems, for example. Um, sewers surely are the result of creative genius. Somebody imagined them, designed them, and poured the cement for them. Did the designer of the sewer pipe not flex the same creative muscle as the painter or the poet? And then uh, skipping ahead s several pages. Art matters. It is not simply a leisure activity for the privileged or a hobby for the eccentric. It is a practical good for the world. The work of the artist is an expression of hope. It is an homage to the value of human life, and it is vital to society. Art is, sacred, is a sacred expression of the human creativity that shares the same ontological ground as all human work. Art, along with all work, is, and he's, this is, he italicizes this as his thesis of his book, art, uh, along with all work, is the ordering of creation toward the intention of the creator, uh, which is kind of his way of saying a lot of what I've said already. And then goes on to say several pages later uh, about the Genesis story, which I read from to you. The Genesis story, in the Genesis story, humans become a part of this ongoing creative gesture that is the universe. And what sets us apart from the rest of creation is this breath that is breathed into the dust. That breath is the image of the creator. It is humanness, awareness, soul, spirit. In Genesis, human creativity is a leathery truth. It's not abstract, groundless philosophical floatiness. It's breath meeting dirt, flesh meeting spirit. It's not ex nihilo. It's an ordering of the chaos. And an ordering of the chaos is another way for him to say what he said earlier, that art, along with all work, is the ordering of creation toward the intention of the creator. And uh, whereas God created something out of nothing, uh, we create other things out of other things. Um, we live within the context of God's creation. Um, and so we use his, his word breathed into us to create uh, uh, language. Um, he first spoke, and it was. And then we spoke and named the animals. That's not ex nihilo like God, but uh, sub-creation uh, in the image of God. And so that's what he's getting at, that there's an earthiness uh, to human creativity, even in the, the Genesis story. Um, and so, as I said, uh, these hands can create beautiful things, but they can also do violence. Well, that has to do with um, the question of what happens after Eden. Because in the garden, uh, these hands were solely used for uh, work that was uh, without sin, um, that uh, was used to, uh, to uh, maintain the beasts of the field and plow the garden. Uh, these hands were used to create uh, beautiful music that um, had no violence to it. But what happens after Eden? First, before they leave Eden, God, you know, there's the, you, you know the story, there's the fall. Uh, they make a bad decision uh, with the fruit and, and eat it. Uh, and then God gives a sort of punishment, um, the uh, judgment to first the serpent um, and, uh, and then the woman, and then to Adam. And what does he say? He says to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. 
Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Well, something really interesting happens because although we maintain inside of us this divine spark, uh, the image of God, now we're told that our creative energies will have pain. Um, either the, the giving birth through childbirth and childbearing now being painful, or as you could say, if you've ever created anything, sometimes it's painful. It's like giving birth to something, and, and therefore there's toil. Um, and even the most basic things of, uh, of producing food will now be a, a battle with the ground and the elements. Um, and uh, so there's this sort of, there's the both sides of the equation. There's the beauty that once was still, and yet there's, uh, there's sin, there's anger, there's toil, there's darkness, and violence. I mean, in the very next chapter, in the very beginning, we see the first murder uh, with Cain and Abel. And so these hands that once could create masterpieces now <laughs> kill my own brother. Um, and that creative energy is, um, is uh, now uh, molested to, to do things that it was never intended to do. And so well, what about after Eden? You know, now we live after Eden. We live in Genesis chapter 4 and so on here. Of course, we could bring Christ in the equation and we're redeemed. And that's why I want to teach part 2 that I'll get to, which is creating by the grace of God. But still, we have to grapple with the reality of living after Eden. There's a song that my wife introduced me to by an artist named Allie Rogers called Eden. And if you know, our oldest daughter is named Eden. Uh, and that's where we got her name. Um, and I just want to read these lyrics to you in this song by Allie Rogers, skipping the first two verses and just reading verses 3, three 4, and 5. Um, and, uh, you know, it's never quite clear with, and I never, I, I don't really need to hear from the artist what she intended, by the way. That's the problem with the internet. After I watch a movie, what do I do? All I know is I go on Wikipedia and I look up everything about the movie. And actually that's kind of problematic because now we live in a world where you can not only go on Wikipedia, but you can watch a movie and now on the DVD they have all these extras where you hear from the director what they intended. Uh, and you could watch the movie now after you've seen it the first time and, and, and watch it with the director and producer talking about every nitpicking detail. Well, that's fascinating, but it takes something out of the sort of appreciation of art where, we under, where, where, where it is true that we bring ourselves um, you know, uh, to that painting. Like that painting on, it, on its own exists, and sure, the artist intended certain things, but I can't neglect the fact that I bring my whole life to that painting too, and, uh, and it's a relationship. Why am I saying that? Because I'm going to read to you these three verses from Eden by Allie Rogers, and I'll say, is it a love song, or is it addressed to God? Uh, I don't know. I think it probably could be both. Um, and that, well, that's creative poetry. And here's what she says about Eden, after Eden. Would I love you less or better if I didn't miss your face? Read your words like a love letter. Would I have known your grace? We're all homesick. Is love the reason? My hunger led me to your hope. 
Until the end of this colder season, keep us warm. Because we're always eaten the day after she fell. We feel good and evil and choose which one to tell. Um, I, I don't want to bring the whole song in and listen to it because it's like four and a half minutes long. It would have taken too much time. But do yourself a favor and listen to it because me reading it doesn't do it entire justice. But um, who's you? Is it her boyfriend or God? You know, I mean, uh, she is Christian. And it could be both. But let's just think about it as God. Um, Would I love you less or better if I didn't miss your face? Read the words like a love letter. Would I have known your grace? Well, would we have known grace if Adam and Eve had never ate the fruit? Uh, Maybe not. You know, I mean, so I I think it was St. Augustine who said, uh, or beautiful trespass. The fact that Adam and Eve trespassed means that we now know God's mercy and grace. I mean, it's a terrible thing. Um, but maybe would have never known his mercy and grace. Well, I'll leave that to the philosophers for that um, thought experiment in part two of this class, which is creating by the grace of God. But we're all homesick. Is love the reason? My hunger led me to your hope until the end of this colder season. Keep us warm, because we're always eaten. The day after she fell, we feel good and evil. We choose which one to tell. Um, we choose which one or both, and the things that we create, both good and evil, um, I, I can't separate it. I mean, if you have this sort of doctrine of what's called total depravity, which means that I'm not totally depraved, and like every, every single thing about me isn't depraved, but every single thing about me is touched by depravity, and therefore I can't have a thought or say a word or produce something of artistry without it being touched by evil, unfortunately but also good because I'm created in the image of God. And that's the tension that I live in as a theologian about the idea of creativity. And I've been struggling with this for a long time because I say a lot of things about creativity that are kind of unpopular because a lot of times people want only the good and only the beauty. And I criticize that. I think that's okay if you want like a pretty chair or just some wallpaper that'll make your house nice. There's nothing wrong with that in and of itself, but to 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 ignore the negativity is actually problematic because I live in the real world, which is the day after Eden. And this theologian, Jerem Bars, the great thing about teaching a class like this is I've taught others like it here, and somebody says, have you ever read Echoes of Eden by Jerem Bars? And I go, no, and I buy it. Um, and then I talk about it here. And so maybe after this class, you'll have some book recommendations, and uh, it'll come up in about nine months. But... Jerem Bars, in his book, reflects on what I've just said uh, about or what Ali Rogers talks about. We choose which one to tell. Uh, and here's what Jerem Bars says about creativity from a Christian point of view. We may describe a Christian understanding of the arts in the following way. Our work in any field of the arts will be imitative. We will be thinking God's thoughts after him, painting his col- with his colors, speaking uh, with his gift of language, exploring and expressing his sounds and harmonies, working with his creation and all its glory, diversity, and inbuilt inventiveness. In addition, we'll find ourselves longing to make known the beauty of life as it once was in paradise, the tragedy of its uh, present marring, and the hope of our final redemption. All great art will echo these three elements of Eden. One, Eden in its original glory, Two, Eden that is lost to us. And three, the promise that Eden will be restored. Um, And I think that that 
uh, is a, a really important point. Um, and uh, you could say, well, that's just his opinion. You know, I, I think that there, there might be great artwork out there that, uh, that all it does is have Eden in its original glory. Um, and you could say, well, that's kind of pessimistic to say that it should also have Eden that is lost to us. But don't forget the third point that what he says is all great art also has the promise that Eden will be restored, um, the hope for redemption. Um, because without that third point, if you just dwell on the second, Eden that is lost to us, you could say that's nihilistic. Um, but we do have the hope. But the thing is, you can't get to the hope without addressing the, the problem. Um, and you can't understand the problem without understanding where we had once been, and it's lost to us. Um, and so I bring this up uh, uh, because I've been in conversation about that very topic for a little while and have written some things. Um, and, and the thing that I, I kind of attack in the art world is what you could call sentimentalism or romanticism. Um, and I think the thing that I'm trying to get at in criticizing it is not the thing, the art itself um, uh, that's sentimental or romantic, but the Christian em embrace, especially the evangelical embrace of things that are mostly sentimental and romantic, um, that are safe, um, that a lot of times just have point one, Eden in its original glory, and point three, the promise of Eden will be restored to us without really getting at point two, Eden that is lost to us. And the person that I've, um, that I've kind of picked on, and the, the thing is, I, I'm not really picking on him again. What I want to say is I'm picking on the Christian embrace of him is Thomas Kincaid. Do you know who Thomas Kincaid is? The painter of light. Um, um, Thomas Kincaid once was quoted in, I think it was a Christianity Today article, as having said, someone who interviewed him, uh, I love to create beautiful worlds where light dances and peace reigns. I like to portray a world without the, the fall, capital F. I like to paint a world without the fall. He likes to paint Eden in its original glory um, and, and doesn't address points two and three. Um, and if you don't know who I'm talking about, uh, I just pulled up his website. He's, he's now, he passed away, a very tragic death, by the way. Um, premature death. Um, uh, you can see there, uh, like, you know, sort of, I mean, it's pretty. Pastoral scenes, landscapes, often these sort of uh, Tudor-esque kind of cabins in the wood or something like that. Um, and the thing that I find problematic about this is over the whole expanse of his life and career, it was point one. Eden in its original glory. I mean, in a particular painting, I mean, like this one here behind us of the rector's garden, you could say that that's point one, Eden in its original glory. And that's fine to have that in a particular piece of artwork, but a man who lived well into his 50s over the expanse of his whole life, in terms of anything that we ever saw, never addressed what was lost and the hope for redemption. Um, there was no need for redemption um, because it was never lost. And so it's kind of sweeping away my everyday reality under the rug and your everyday reality. Um, and I've gotten some vitriolic response. By the way, I just found out if you search Thomas Kincaid on the internet, 
I'm on page one of the Google search, which is crazy. Uh, and it's kind of scary to me because people have started writing emails to me like this one. <clears throat> Matt, you're an idiot. <laughs> How can you possibly know what the world wants in terms of art? Kincaid's immense popularity is proof that you don't know. His art was ridiculed by people like you who insist that, quote, real art must contain sadness and horror. That's ridiculous. Every artist wants to be appreciated for their contribution to the world, and it was uh, know-it-all pseudo-critics like you that made Kincaid so despondent. There's absolutely no good reason to paint his uh, to paint his work, I guess, other paint his work other than downright meanness. I guess that's your contribution to the world? Question <laughs> mark. Uh, and that's not the only one. There's an entire do you know Reddit, the website? There's an entire Reddit page devoted to me and my criticism of Tom Thomas Kincaid. I, I did not intend for this to happen. You just put something on the internet. And it, it can go viral, and it's out there for all the world uh, to, to interact with. And uh, the problem with that for me is the first thing I wrote about Kincaid was incomplete. And there were, uh, there were, there were, there were budding thoughts. And so I wrote a follow-up, and still the first thing got the most attention. The follow-up doesn't get the same amount of attention. Um, but uh, but uh, I'm sad for Kincaid. He died of a, a alcohol and drug overdose, um, which means, like she said, he was despondent. He had a painful life. He knew point two all too well that Eden is lost to us, um, and uh, so much so that that he died a tragic and premature death. But if you look at his artwork, you don't see that. Um, and I don't want to just uh, criticize Kincaid because r remember that uh, the thing that uh, that bothers me isn't the artwork itself, but the Christian wholesale embrace of things that are safe. And I want to bring to your attention something I've been thinking about because I think it's a, a precursor to Kincaid. Is um, is this guy Warner Solomon? Maybe you've seen this. Uh, painting of Jesus' head. This is the most reproduced painting of Jesus Christ. Uh, half a billion copies have been produced. Um, uh, and I would qualify Solomon's artwork as actually sentimental and romantic. Um, it's Christ without uh, the, the sacrifice. Uh, it's Christ in the garden. And you know that song? He walks with me and talks with me. Um, I mean, that's kind of what the, the visual art gets at. And one of his that, that's less popular that kind of really demonstrates this is Christ our pilot, which just has a boy at the wheel of a ship and Jesus kind of very Anglo looking. It's just sentimental. And maybe you've seen the statues of Jesus as your body coach uh, that, that are out there. Um, that, that, that Jesus is your brother and friend, he's your coach, he's your life coach, but is he your redeemer, is he your savior? We don't really get that in this kind of, of artwork. And so that's kind of a, some examples of, uh, of uh, sentimental artwork uh, that exists, it exists both inside of the church and without. But the, the Christian sort of wholesale embrace that this guy has the most popular image of Jesus ever produced, and not someone who's showing 
uh, you know, uh, Jesus is our redeemer who died and, and rose again on the third day. Uh, but something else is just a headshot of what actually looks like a, a kind of a white guy with long hair. You know, isn't probably actually an accurate depiction of what Jesus looked like. Um, but so all that, but what are some examples then? I don't want to just be uh, critical of these, and there might be redeeming aspects of individual pieces of artwork that these artists have produced, but what's, what does creativity look like um, after Eden that gets at the, some of these points beyond Eden and its original glory, Eden that is lost to us and the promise that Eden will be restored? And just some things that have come up to me that, I think are really creative and, and speak to me uh, in the past couple of weeks that I just want to show to you. Uh, this artist we had in an event uh, recently does these portraits of people that are his friends. If, if you were there and you know the answer, don't answer it, but if, if you weren't there and, and want to give a guess, do you know what this is made out of? Uh, does it say that? Okay. This is, this is made out of blue painter's tape. Uh, you know, this sort of um, the ordinary, mundane, typically kind of ignored sort of thing out there in the world. Uh, something that has to be created because of the fall. You know, I can't paint good lines uh, because the world has fallen. And he's taken this thing and meticulously uh, created portraits of his friends. Um, and, and that, to me, um, I don't know, I think is an example of creativity after the fall that, that shows the sort of um, the, the, the image of God coming through. It's beautiful, and yet it's marred. It's so simplistic. It's so ordinary. Painter's tape that's torn. Um, and maybe it's not the best example, but it's something that's come to my attention Recently, something else is someone who is living in the in the in uh, in the fall after the fall after Eden, um, who uh, came to my attention recently is uh, my friend's husband uh, Matthew. Every year goes out of his way to create this crazy haunted house at his house. He spends from August through October crafting a haunted house on his front lawn. Uh, it, it's re- absolutely ridiculous, the, 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 the craftsmanship that he puts into it. Here's a earlier... He, he's building pillars to put on his fence to make it look like a graveyard, and inside of them he has aquatic speakers that are waterproof, so if it rains, uh, it can have these sounds of Halloween. Um, and uh, I'm just excited about that creativity. And now it might, you might say, well, I don't like Halloween. Um, uh, I'll grant you that. Um, it's spooky. Um, but uh, there, there is the image of Eden lost, and yet there's someone who has taken this divine spark and creativity and poured his entire life into it, those three months out of the year where he's developing, but also you got to say probably the nine months in between where he's planning it out. Just year-round, this is this thing that this guy uh, has just devoted all his sort of artistry and creative energy into. And that gets me more excited than Thomas Kincaid, to tell you the truth. 
Um, well, we've got just a couple few minutes. Any responses to anything that I've said or questions? Yeah, Kelly. Yeah. And all that. But um, I heard something um, when, when you were talking about watching the movie and we, we didn't immediately look up for the reviews and try to get all the answers. And I heard something recently, it was a conversation between, an old conversation between Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. Yeah. And Tolkien, although C.S. <clears throat> Lewis is such a great, great writer, Tolkien criticized him. He was a great journalist and but he criticized him for his novel because he said he spelled everything out. And Tolkien had a way of never calling it exactly what it was, but yeah. he told that original story of good and evil and fall and redemption. Uh-huh. And he was saying in that, what I was listening to, that it's okay not to spell everything out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And he didn't, and his message went out into the world. Right, yeah. Whereas with C.S. Lewis, it might be a little more obvious that yeah, like no, I love that Aslan is Jesus or yeah. what? Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, C.S. Lewis was influenced by Tolkien. They were friends, and so he was. I mean, Tolkien really devoted his life to to fantasy in a way that C.S. Lewis maybe didn't to that extent, but still was amazing in, in his own right. Um, but yeah, he's more oblique than, than than Lewis, and I think good artwork often is, especially that that might be coming from an evangelical place, because if you if you just come out with the head of Christ and, and that's it, you know who's going to buy it are Christians, you know, I mean, and, and who are going to consume it. Uh, it might not speak a, a message of hope and redemption, uh, because those who don't think they need that message are just going to ignore it because when you come to someone head on they're like listen buddy uh you know um who's watching fireproof not 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 non-christians if you know what i'm talking about kirk cameron christians are watching those movies i mean it might be great for those christians who get something out of it uh but it's just too obvious um it's not Storytelling, yeah. Storytelling. She said, um, she said the best way to kill a good story is to make sure they get the point. And, and she said that if you watch little children reading a story and they'll love it, and then the teacher closes the book and says, now what was the point of the story? And they all just sort of like droop, and it takes away by, by forcing them to come to the same conclusion. Yeah, the story speaks to us, and often, you, I, you know, I, I, I read a book, and I don't think right away, like, now what was the point of that? You know, I just let it wash over me and move on to the next thing and hope that it affects my life, um, being caught up in it. And Christians often, uh, especially, this might be a 20th century thing, it might be an American thing, it might be a Protestant thing, it might be in light of the Enlightenment thing, it might be all of that. We're so caught up in uh, constant exposition constantly talking about the thesis um, and we're just talking to each other often um, but artwork and story uh, lets does a lot of the heavy lifting and can reach the human heart in a way that the sort of the the constant sort of um, 
um, documentary approach uh, might not. And there's there's a place for that. Don't get me wrong. I mean, there's a place for exposition. <laughs> um, I you know I read biblical commentaries and I'm glad that the person who wrote it is straightforward with me. Um, but I read the Bible on its own without the commentary because I want the story to wash over me. And those are two entirely different uh, experiences. Well, we've gone over a few minutes. Thank you for joining me. Um, uh, if you have any other thoughts, send me an email. Uh, give me a call. Let's go out to lunch or get coffee. Give me another book recommendation. Uh, and, and then uh, when I read it, I want to talk to you about it. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.